Hey, wait a minute. Who's this guy? It's me, Todd Cooper. Your favorite or least favorite curtain man for the Thrilling Adventure Hour. Hey, do you like the Thrilling Adventure Hour? Do you even love the Thrilling Adventure Hour? Well, if you do, and that's why you're listening to it probably, guess what you're going to really like? The Thrilling Adventure Hour in comic book form. Yeah, the number one old-time radio show and new-time podcast is for the first time ever a contemporary monthly comic book. The Thrilling Adventure Hour, Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars comic book is available at a virtual or actual like brick-and-mortar comic book store near you as of February 18th, 2015. It's written by Acker and Blacker, the ones who write the show that you like. It's the perfect compliment to this podcast, the one I just mentioned again. The comic story, The Sad Sad Song of Widow Johnson, is an all-new, never-been-podcast tale that fits right within the continuity of Sparks Nevada Marshall on Mars. Where in the continuity? Well, read it and find out. Yeah, it's your job. Thrilling Adventure Hour Comics. Our jump into the next medium is brought to you by Work Juice. Oh, by the way, if you're in L.A., lucky you, you little thing. Come hang out with Acker and Blacker and some Work Juice players and special guests. Hint, hint, I'll be there. <laughs> and get varying editions of the Sparks comic, including books with a photo cover. Yeah, and a cover with art by Jamie McKelvey. Woo! At Meltdown Comics on Wednesday, February 18th, between 7 and 8 p.m. That's at Meltdown Comics on Wednesday the 18th, like I just said, the day the book comes out. Get there. We'll see you there, I think, if you live here. Okay. Bye, everyone. Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey, everyone. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon's Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, check it out. It's pretty fun. Um, I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, as always, please leave a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful to me. Uh, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nerdist Writers Panel, and follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. It's guys, I got Eileen Chaikin. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, look, I expected to walk in here... <laughs> And find hip-hop dancers. <laughs> uh, we're in the Empire offices, uh, but it's really quiet here. You were saying you guys are just in post now. Well, yeah, we wrapped shooting our last episode of season one at the end of last week. Oh, we finished on Thursday. We didn't have to shoot on Friday, which was... What a treat. It, it was our kind of... We had, we, had, we had a pin in that day. It's like, if we spill over. Mm-hmm. But we, we actually got all of our work done as planned, and... Um, all of my writing colleagues are doing their kind of hiatus thing. Mm-hmm. And you guys, has the second season been picked up? It Do you has. Know yet? That's um, fantastic. Congratulations. Fox picked us up. Thank you. Fox picked us up at the TCAs, the day of the oh, TCAs, right. and after two episodes, which I'm sure you know that's is wild. kind of extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, did, 
you've been on, you came on board a while ago on this, right? I came on board before the show was officially ordered yeah. to series, um, but just before the upfronts, when there was that sense that this might mm-hmm. get on the schedule, and they were doing that the dance of you know the meeting showrunners dance. Yeah. And I met Lee and Danny and Francie Calfo from Imagine. Mm-hmm. And but and was there? I mean, I. And I know Danny a little bit, and so that's why maybe it was hard for me to filter out the idea that this could be such a breakout hit. I mean, it felt like, you know, they throw a bunch of shows at the wall every year. You never know what's going to hit. But what was what was the tenor around the show as you guys were kind of pulling it together? There was, well, you know, I came on board when we didn't even know if there was going to be a show. Sure. There was a sense that it would go. It wasn't a sure thing. It wasn't like mm-hmm. this pilot's on the air, no right. question. Um, but it was already, you know, I mean, Fox really had an instinct about the show, and their support for it from the very beginning was really um, unusual and, and, you know, and, and had a lot to do with why we were able to do what we did. Mm-hmm. But from the moment they picked it up, there was a sense of certainly not inevitability and not the expectation that it would be as big a hit as it apparently is. Sure. But but just a, a sense of we've got something here. We've got something really special, and we're going to support it and nurture it, hmm. and we hope it does what we think it might do. <laughs> yeah, It's funny to hear you say, as it apparently is, is this something you guys have to kind of filter out the outside reaction as you move through the season? Yeah, and you know, it's always, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a pinch yourself repeatedly kind sure. of a situation. Um, it's a pretty big hit. There are all kinds of, of kind of superlatives and hyperbole <laughs> about the, the numbers flying around. Mm-hmm. Um, we're excited about what we're doing and think that we're doing it pretty well and want to do it even better. That's a great way to think of it. It really is. I mean, I would imagine the the only thing that's changed from, you know, the making the first few episodes when it, the show wasn't even on the air to now is you know you're going to have a season next year. You can do some broader planning. How How did you guys sit down? And I want to kind of go back, but before we get to that, how did how did you put together the writers, and then how did you guys sit down and kind of figure out what this show is? Because, you know, a pilot is one thing, but yeah. then having to do 10, 12, 15 episodes is a different. Um, it's always daunting when you start and you have no idea what lies ahead, and you don't know whether you're going to be able to figure it out. Um, but as always, it starts with the pilot, the, the script, mm-hmm. and when you're coming on board a show that's already been piloted, the show, what you've got, the cast, the elements, and this was an extraordinary pilot. Mm-hmm. I, when I saw this pilot, I thought, I can't articulate what it is, and even to this day, I'm loath to try to articulate <laughs> it, but, but I thought, this is really something. There's something going on here that's hmm. very special. Um, I did actually say to my agent the day that I saw the pilot I think this is a game changer really yeah and and that's well, a little well, hyperbole for you yeah let's try to articulate it a little bit um, what was it that you responded to because I feel like tied into that 
is the question, the other question I want to ask, which is, what makes you the person to take the reins of this show? That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, so what, why is it a game changer? Again, I couldn't articulate it. Mm. There are, it was more than anything just a feeling. I watched the show and I knew that it worked and it worked powerfully. And I've thought from the first moment that I did my first TV show, which was The L Word, it's alchemy. It's hmm. You write a script, you've got a story to tell, you believe passionately in your story, and it's got a reason to be told, but it's not until it's cast and you see that group of people working together and sure. you start to create a world that very occasionally this alchemical magic takes place that really is thrilling and that that makes great television, film, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, although they're different media, it's as true in movies as in television. You know, we all start out wanting to be really, really good. Nobody ever takes on a project <laughs> saying, I think we're going to do something just right. awful I'm going to phone it in. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know how to turn that off. Sorry, don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, you never know whether you are going to be good, whether it's going to turn out well, and keep working as hard as you can, keep trying to make it good. Sometimes halfway through, you know that you're failing terribly. <laughs> and sometimes you're not sure, and also we hype ourselves up because mm -hmm. it's really hard work, and we have to. Yeah. And it's also our business, right? We're constantly telling ourselves and one another and everybody that we talk to that it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, you have to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all seen things that fail, and the people who made them are still going around saying, it was great, sure. nobody knew. They just missed it. <laughs> sure. Um, which brings me to my other question. I mean, I, I was a big fan of The L Word, and that show is not for me, clearly. <laughs> no, but it was. Uh, but, it, but it really was. And, you know, I think that's, that's what I and so many people who... We're not lesbians in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> Loved about it, although there were older people too. But how do you go from that to this program? You know, what makes, what makes you the guy? It's not that different. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, firstly, as in, in terms of the genre of storytelling, it's serialized melodrama. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I primarily love to do. There are a few things that I love to do as a writer mm -hmm. and as a filmmaker, but that's first and foremost. And there aren't that many people who do it. Yeah. Um, and There aren't that many venues for it anymore either. No. We'll see what happens now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, there's also... There's a big difference in tone between Empire and The L Word. Absolutely. The L Word had this great natural... Uh, very small moment sort of uh, feel to it, and Empire is all about the big moments. Yeah. Um, so and they're both cut from the same cloth, clearly. But but how do you adjust that? And and again, like how do you convey that tone to your writers? Well, a part of being a showrunner, as I see it, is I mean, there. There's the writing is the primary thing. Being good, tapping into the voice and the ambitions of the show, getting what it is, um, and being able to develop it, articulate it to one's colleagues, um, and mm -hmm. not just the writing colleagues, but also the studio, the network. Sure. Um, but part of it is 
a, a managerial job. Yeah. And a big part of that job is knowing how to understand the voice and intentions of the show. And in this case, more than anything, Lee Daniels and Danny Strong, mm-hmm. who they are, what they do, what they created, and how to keep it alive. Finding a way to keep them involved, wrangling them. <laughs> sure, they have a million things going yeah. on. And, you know, and, and I think it would come as no surprise that Lee is somebody who really needs to be wrangled. He has so much going on <laughs> yes. and such a, a fast brain and so many wild ideas and how to kind of get him into that room, capture that voice, mm-hmm. keep checking back with him and making sure that it's his voice. It's not my voice. It's mm-hmm. not about, um, you know, wanting my voice and getting me to take over a show. It's about my knowing how to capture his voice, replicate it in the room with a group of writers, expand and expound on it because there are a lot of voices in an ensemble TV show. Um, Finding the filmmakers who can both bring something new to each episode but also understand enough of who Mm -hmm. Lee is and what he does and did to capture those kinds of moments. Um, It's not so much how I speak and write as that I know how to do that and Mm -hmm. actually care about doing that that I think makes me at least qualified. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's that's a really interesting way to put it. And we've talked to, especially this year, a number of writers who have become showrunners on a show someone else created. And yeah. I think that's the most eloquently I've heard that put is, you know, I'm, I'm there to convey that voice. Uh, what's interesting to me is, you know, we don't know you from shows that are not your own. You know, I, I don't know you from being on staff on a number of different shows where you've had to, staff. yeah, where you've yeah. had to have someone else's voice. Yeah. So, is this something that comes easily to you? What What is the process for you yeah. to, you know, figuring out Lee and Danny's voice and conveying that? It's not easy, and I would never say that it comes easily to me. But it's something that I think I intuitively know how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do think of it as being a function of being a writer. Being a writer is about listening and capturing voices. And so to be able to apply that particular skill in a kind of managerial way seems natural. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, let's let's go back. Let's talk just a little bit about uh, how you got started. What, what was before the L word for you? Uh, what were, Did you grow up a writer? Were you always a writer? I... I if you mean that literally, yes. I grew up a writer in that when I was little, I was a writer. It was how I was kind of identified really? in my family and in school. But I also, I then I, I went astray because when I was 14 or 15, I had a boyfriend who was super cool and I believed everything he said. And he told me that writing is obsolete. What? He actually said that. He was this precocious, obnoxious 15-year-old who said, writing is obsolete. It's going to be done by the time (laughs) we're we're adults. Amazing. And so I went to art school because he told me that wasn't obsolete. And I got to art school and and found that all I wanted to do was write, and I was miserable because I didn't want to make things I wanted to write, and hence I became a filmmaker. That is hilarious. Um, 
So the so coming out of art school or even in there, it was was it the storytelling aspect of filmmaking that you responded to? Yeah, that was what I responded to, mm-hmm. and that's why I you know I started out as a graphic design major and was unhappy oh, because I wasn't telling stories, and then transferred into the film department so I could tell stories. Oh wow! Um, but then jumping ahead, I came to Hollywood um, and worked as an executive for ten years. Oh, really? Where were you an executive? I started out as a trainee at Creative Artists, Mm -hmm. um, did that for three years, then became a development executive, actually learned television at the feet of Aaron Spelling. No kidding. I ran Aaron Spelling Oh, this explains everything. (laughs) In a weird way. That's really interesting. Uh, So that must have been, were you, I mean, what was your relationship to TV before then? Um, I had no interest in TV. I was... Uh, my first job after I left Creative Artists was as a development executive for two movie producers at Warner's. Mm-hmm. Developed movies. Went with one of those producers to start a movie division at Spelling. Still developing oh, movies. Fine. And it was, you know, it was before television was a respectable <laughs> sure. art form. Last was, year. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I That's was over fun. there making movies and I met Aaron Spelling in a meeting. I was just, I was the, the D girl. Mm-hmm. We actually, you know, it was back when, think, <laughs> we don't, they don't call them D I don't girls. think they do anymore. No. Um, it's in quotes now. Yeah. Um, and he invited me to come work in development and television. And I scooted over got an office in his building and started developing television for him. What was he doing at the time? Which which uh, era of spelling was this? It was the most just fallow, desiccated era in spelling's <laughs> history. He still had all of his old school shows on. He had Dynasty oh, um, and was it called the Colbys, the Dynasty spinoff? Oh, I don't know. And I didn't even know about Hotel that. was still on the air. Mm-hmm. I think Love Boat might even have still been in its waning days. <laughs> um, there was a season of an I Love Lucy reboot, which wow. was amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, and with Lucille Ball. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. But nothing new. And it was during the five years that I was at Spelling, and I went from being a director of development to being the senior executive of the company wow. like in charge of all of his development um, and it was when it, it was the dawn of the age of Stephen Bochco mm-hmm. so sure. suddenly spelling was becoming obsolete and somewhat disdained yeah. and it, he just it was it was between his heyday, mm-hmm. when he did all of those great old shows, and then when he reinvented himself with 90210. Right. Yeah, he just that had gone out of fashion, that yeah. sort of ensemble, emotional, exactly. sort of soapy show. So, I mean, we, we did... Yeah. Um, we, we did a handful of... One of the worst shows in television history. What was it? Um, it was a soap on NBC. It was the first first show he did off of ABC. Oh, um, called Nightingales, about student nurses. It was just fabulous. Was that something uh, you had developed? Um, I I developed it, but it was him. It was his idea. Sure. It was and and the I mean, the greatest thing about Nightingales it was really. It, it, it was um, almost shameful, but um, 
<laughs> Maybe it was shameful. There was a lot of that at the time, though. Yes. Like, that was a strange time for television. I think there were protests by student nurses across the country because they were so offended by the show. <laughs> but but um, I did hire a director who had just been, she was a relatively new director who had been doing episodes of television. I gave her her first pilot, which was a big break for her. Um, her name was Mimi Leader. No kidding. So Mimi directed the pilot of Nightingales. Oh, my God. I'm sure that's yeah. top of a resume. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was fun, but the thing that we did do while I was at Spelling that I'm actually proud of, except that nobody knows that it was Spelling, was Twin Peaks. Wait a minute. Explain this. <laughs> I didn't know that was Spelling. It was Spelling. Um, it was, uh, we get into arcane kind of business dealings, but the company went public. Mm-hmm. Um, a business exec called Jules Heimovitz came in to oversee the, um, the IPO, and we were talking about doing things a little differently, and CAA was our agent, and I knew um, I had been working with propaganda films because mm-hmm. we also developed um, with propaganda, and it never went on the air, a new reboot of Charlie's Angels. Oh, and I was doing it with propaganda because we wanted it to be hit. <laughs> um, Fantastic. And I heard that David Lynch was developing a TV show, but they didn't have a home for it. And I said, let's make Spelling the Home. It's a new company. We now can you know, um, mm-hmm. acquire properties. I, One of the just highlights of my career at that time was getting Aaron Spelling and David Lynch into a meeting together. <laughs> they loved one another. <laughs> they, they spoke to one another. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Um, so this whole thing must have just been an enormous crash course on how the TV industry works for you. Working for spelling? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what did you take out of that that helped you to pitch and sell and then eventually run your own shows? The thing that I learned most, because I really don't think that you can learn to run your own show until you run your own mm-hmm. show, but the thing that I really learned from Aaron Spelling was about the post process, about how shows get retold in post Hmm. about how much it's another iteration of the writing process and watching him sit in an editing room and remake a show that wasn't working and seeing how it all happened inside his head was a revelation to me that's really interesting I've, I've heard a lot about how for having so many shows and being this, you know, mogul, he was really involved with them all. Very hands-on. That's really interesting. Yeah. Was I mean, I would imagine, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to lead you down anything, but that could go as poorly as it could go well. In an age when television was changing, yeah. Yeah. But still, a, a fascinating <laughs> thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny too for a producer to have that kind of authorial voice. Yeah. I, th- I guess that's what it is, and again, it just sort of gone out of fashion for a spell. Oh, well, and that's, I mean, he started, too, as an actor and a mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. And he always looked at himself as that. He, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't think that he lived in the same world as the rest of us, but he always still related to the, the medium as, as an artist. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Was... Uh, was working in development scratching the storytelling itch for you? <laughs> a little. A little. A little. Yeah. It's... So what was missing? And then how did you start to find your way, you know, as as a writer? I found my way to being a writer 
by crashing and burning as an executive. Really? What happened? Uh, it's just, it was more the, the frustration of not scratching the storytelling mm. itch. And, you know, as a executive developing material in Hollywood in film and television. You know, sometimes you're on fire and excited and collaborating and you know when I think about the executives that I collaborate with now, they're really fruitful collaborations. Mm -hmm. um, they're folks who really know how to work with writers and make us better. Um, I'm not sure that I was ever a great executive in that way. <laughs> let's, let's dig into that a little bit. I'm curious why you think not. I'm, it's, I just have no memories of... I mean, maybe I was better than I think I was, <laughs> but um, of, of just sitting with a writer and doing that great editorial service... Mm -hmm. You know, talking about what your intentions are and helping you to find them and bring out the best and giving that one note that mm -hmm. that urges a writer to dig deeper and find the moment that she's missing. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, that is absolutely the kind of collaboration that makes for a great executive. Yeah. For sure. That's interesting. But I mean, I, it's, I think it's it's funny that you think with the story sense that you probably innately had and certainly the interest in it that you wouldn't have done that as an executive, as someone developing stories? Had I gone on being an executive, I'd like to think that I would have done <laughs> it. But I think my urge to write was, was too strong. And mm -hmm. also, you know, the, the frustrations and also the politics that one gets sure. caught up in as an executive. There just came a moment when it was my, my, my next job after working for Anne Spelling was working for Quincy Jones. Really? And um, as an executive, helping to put together the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. When I say I crashed and burned, it was I knew that I was like just not going to last very much longer. Mm -hmm. um, were you at the time writing for yourself or anyone else? Were you doing any kind of, of uh, creative writing? I tried once during my time as an executive to write a script, but it's you know when you're a movie executive, there's nothing more terrifying than trying your hand at writing. Because you just you think you're going to get rejected, and in fact, I did. I remember writing a script and sending it to one agent friend I knew, who said, "You should stick with being an executive." Oh no! And I then didn't write again for a number of years. And then, when I was working for Quincy Jones Entertainment, and I was just hitting that wall, mm -hmm. over one Christmas break, I locked myself, and I went to Telluride with a bunch of friends, and while they all went out and skied, I locked myself in the house, and in the course of nine days, wrote a script. No kidding. And I came back, and I gave that script to an agent that I knew well and did a lot of business with, mm -hmm. I said, I'm about to get fired from my job. Here's my script. I'm a writer now. Wow. Where, what was that script? Where did it come from? Was it something, I mean, it was clearly something you were burning to do. It was, it, I, it was, I was venting my anger. I wrote an <laughs> angry girl action futuristic fantasy back in the, what? like, at, at the early 90s, in 1990, in fact, before I think anybody was making those kinds yeah. of movies. Um, that was pre-Buffy, pre-Xena. It was pre-all <laughs> pre of that. And in fact, Buffy and Xena were both things. Xena, I interviewed to, I think, even they were looking for somebody to write the script to create it. Oh, funny. Right? But based on that script that I'm talking mm -hmm. about, um, 
and it was it was an homage to the Seven Samurai. That is wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a feature script. This was a feature script, and I literally came back, gave it to this agent mm-hmm. friend who gave it to a few people. The agent was an ICM agent. Um, and within a couple of weeks, I had my first feature writing job. I was hired by uh, Hollywood Pictures mm-hmm. to write a script that um, Ricardo Mestres had. It was, you know, Mestres was the president of. of Hollywood Pictures at the okay. time, and it was a pet project of his. And then I was a writer. Was it something in line with that sample script you had written? It was only in line in that it was a, an ensemble piece of, about girls. It was, it was actually about young fashion models. But oh. after that, I got hired to write Barbed Wire, which uh-huh. was my first produced work, and oh, that was, you know, that that was much more um, sure. in, in the genre. Yeah. that I had written in. Was that, I mean, let's let's talk about genre for a second. Was that something, you know, did that script come out of this frustration and, you know, this I'm going to write a script no matter what? Um, or, you know, is this sort of action genre something that interests you? I love the action genre. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I would say that second to serialized melodrama, I like writing action and science fiction. Really? Yeah. Why aren't you doing that? I, um, well, I just did an adaptation of um, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. No kidding. For feature or for Um, TV? For for TV. Oh, that's great. That's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I want to talk about the the feature world for a minute. How, How did that treat you? How did you find... The time you have to put in, the drafts you have to put in. How how, did, how was all that for you? It, you know, it's quite a while ago. I haven't written a feature script yeah. for a long time because I've been busy. Um, it was a tough world. I, I, mean, um, I don't know how to <laughs> respond to how it treated me. Um, well, I know. I mean, it's a much slower pace. There, yeah. It seems like... There are a lot more notes. There are a lot more levels of executives and studio and so forth to go through. Yeah. Um, And it was frustrating because it seemed harder to gain purchase there. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote a, you know, one of my first scripts got produced. I was rewritten on Barbed Wire, but Mm -hmm. I was one of the two writers of note. Sure. which is kind of all you can ask for on a feature, yeah. oftentimes. Um, and then I wrote a couple of other movie scripts that um, just you know went through. It, the thing that happens in the movie business so much is regime changes. You, know, mm-hmm. you start working with someone, um, it, it you have a lot of support and enthusiasm, and then all of a sudden, all the people you started working with aren't there anymore, and there's nobody there who really cares what you're doing. That happened on a couple of projects. I'm sure. Um, I find myself much less drawn to it mm-hmm. for the, um, you know, for, for, for the oft-stated reason that television is more about character, mm-hmm. and I like writing in depth and being able to live with characters. I'm, although I'm a believer in plot and structure, I'm not interested in uh, a story that just turns on big, bold plotting moves and yeah. in which characters get lost. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a really great way to think of it. Even now, as TV is becoming more cinematic, we still get to live with these characters for yeah. a long time. Well, TV seems right now to be the the perfect amalgamation of character and plot. It's much more cinematic. Our ambitions are are aren't thwarted, mm-hmm. but we have an absolute obligation in television to make our characters rich and to keep them alive and to delve into them and find something honest to to say about where they started and where they're going. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like this is leading us into your transition to TV. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how that happened. How do you, did you write specs? Did you sell pilots? How did it work? It was a fluke. Really? So um, I went through a fallow time mm-hmm. where... Um, I actually had two very small children supporting my family, and I couldn't get arrested as a feature writer. I'd written a couple of movies that didn't work. Um, That little regime change thing had happened. Desperately needed a job, and this interesting project came along. I'd never thought about television. I thought of myself as a movie writer, but um, a movie producer was developing a a movie for Showtime. Hmm. And, you know, it was the time when Showtime and HBO did films that were thought of as more or less movies. Mm-hmm. You know, budgets were a little smaller, but you could still say, I'm a film writer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say, I'm a film writer. And it was a great project that I really passionately wanted to do. It was the first thing that I'd been passionate about as an assignment for a long time because it was about all the things I cared about. Um, and primarily, it was about art, and I like writing about art. I like writing about being an artist. Um, it was the Robert Maplethorpe project. It was called Dirty Pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that, of course. And I worked really hard to get the job. I mean, you know, really just got familiar with the material, came up with an approach, pitched my heart out, mm-hmm. and got the job, and spent, you know, the better part of a year writing that script, and it went forward smoothly. Showtime wanted to make it. Um, Frank Pearson was the director. Um, Actually, he came on while I was writing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we made the movie, and to this day, I'm really proud of Mm -hmm. that movie. But yeah, I remember that movie being a big deal for Showtime, too, at the time. It was a big deal for Showtime um, because it was really good and bold and about Mm -hmm. something, but also because it won Showtime their first Golden Globe. Really? And it was, you know, back in the day, Showtime wasn't fancy. Yeah. And they were looking to get fancy. <laughs> they were, yes, everyone, this was when everyone started started chasing the HBO exactly. model. Um, I'm curious, let me just step back for a minute. Obviously, you brought great passion to that pitch, but what do you think it was in your pitch for that project that, it, that they did go with you? It's a long time ago, so I don't remember specifically, but... Um, um, was it a different take, though, than other people offered, do you think? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, they liked my take, obviously. Mm-hmm. I had a grasp of the material, and I believe that it was, you know, it, it wasn't a conventional structure. It's not a conventional story. Mm-hmm. And my approach to it was to tell a personal story, but not to shy away from the, the themes and the kind of controversial nature of the of the subject matter mm-hmm. to really take it on and you know unapologetically to say this is about something and we're going to talk about these ideas we're going to talk about issues um, 
there's and, and I had a trial transcript to work with mm-hmm. and Interesting. I was really I, I think that more than anything it was that I was passionate about it and could speak articulately about the themes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's, as you said, like writing about art. Uh, and, and I wonder if other people tilted too far one way or the other, you know, about the character. But who knows? We'll, we'll find out. Um, so then, so following this, what, were, did Showtime come to you and ask for a series? No. So what Why happened not? What's wrong was with them? they actually <laughs> gave me another movie to write, um, which we also made. Um, much less significant sure. ultimately. But um, while I was doing it, um, and just as Dirty Pictures was about to premiere on Showtime, um, I also, my, I had twin girls. They were almost two years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, I noticed, there were a lot of lesbians having babies. <laughs> and it was kind of a new thing. And I really wanted to write about just my experience of being gay, starting a family, and about the fact that there was something going on in the world. <laughs> and I knew that I couldn't, I, I, could, I just, I knew I couldn't sell a movie idea. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to write about it. And I went to my then agent and said, I want to write about this. And he said, well, do you feel like writing a magazine piece? And he took me to Los Angeles Magazine, and they hired me to write an essay piece about the lesbian baby boom in Hollywood. Oh, wow. I did the, not realize that. It was like 1999 or 2000, mm-hmm. I think, 99. And they gave me a cover. I did a cover story. I didn't know it was going to be a cover, but I wrote it, this long essay piece. And when I finished writing it, I was still burning to write about this more. It was like, it, it didn't, you know, it whetted my appetite rather than satisfying it. And so I went into Showtime and really very whimsically um, with two of the executives that I had worked with on Dirty Pictures, I said, I want to do a series about lesbians in Hollywood. And I knew nothing. I mean, apart from having worked as an executive for Ant Spelling, I knew nothing about writing as a, you know, for television. Sure. And at the time, they kindly left me out of the room. They said, that's really interesting, but it's just, I mean, I know we pushed the envelope here, but not, not that far. Hmm. Interesting. And then... What, and I'm just curious, let me interrupt for a second. Um, a, a couple of things. Just from a, a nuts and bolts perspective, was writing that magazine piece, was it a comfortable medium to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not a magazine writer mm-hmm. or a journalistic writer, but I actually love writing mm-hmm. and making myself a screenwriter the um, the challenge for me was learning to write voices, write characters mm-hmm. um, crafting sentences is something that I always knew how to do Sure, sure. no that makes a lot of sense and, and it must have been so much more purely you and again a story that you were passionate about and that you were burning to tell um, and so then when you did kind of gently pitch this idea, uh, was it anything more than I want to tell the story about lesbians in Hollywood? It Were there was, characters? Was there anything else to it? A little bit. It, I didn't, it wasn't a developed pitch. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I came in and said, here's, right. you know, it's not the way that I now pitch a television yeah. series. Um, but you had, had this relationship with them. So. I had a relationship. I had the article. And I talked just about the world that I knew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there could be somebody like this and somebody like this. But it wasn't a formal pitch. Mm-hmm. And they said, right. it's not going to happen. And 
I didn't push back. I just accepted it because I knew it was true. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Showtime, like a f- month or two later, bought the rights to this English format called Queer as Folk. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, they were telling a gay story, and it was a success for them. And just as Queer as Folk debuted on Showtime, um, Dirty Pictures was nominated for the Golden Globes. I went to the Golden Globes with then president of the network, Jerry Offsay, and the night of the Golden Globes, he actually, just before we won, he whispered in my ear, I think we're going to do that lesbian show with you. (laughs) That's insane. It was crazy, because I had no intention of becoming a television writer. Mm -hmm. But uh, what made TV the best way to tell this story? I wanted to tell the story of... I wanted to do what television does so well, Mm -hmm. to talk about lives and to talk about them in a rich, detailed, ongoing way, Mm -hmm. not to fit them into some artificial plot construct, which is not to say that we don't have plots Mm -hmm. and we don't have, you know, sort of story drivers, but just to really be able to explore character and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that's what television does so beautifully. Absolutely. I, though it's, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like the past few years when you go to pitch a show, you are asked about the story engine. You are asked what every episode looks like. Was this something you had to think about as you started developing The L Word? I didn't know it, but I learned that it is important that you do have to think about it. And I think that it's changed, too. I think that when I started doing The L Word, Mm -hmm. it was less an imperative to have that kind of story engine. Mm -hmm. I would never, ever approach any television show in that way again. I believe in the importance of story, and I, I know that we have to continue to kind of... To, to keep story alive mm-hmm. as much as character. They need to live together. But the L word when we started was much more about kind of just what happens in life on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis. Well, it feels like you were in the right place at the right time with the right people to make that kind of show. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the challenges uh, in, the, in the early days of, of putting the show together? Well, there was a challenge for me in learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I, something happened that I think almost never happens and might not happen if it were today, which is that the executive in charge of the show, um, somebody that I had worked with when I was an executive at ABC, oh, really? he was at ABC. I was at Spelling. We worked together. And when, after we made the pilot and went through that entire process and the show got picked up to series, his name is Gary Levine, and mm-hmm. he is that first great, great executive mm-hmm. I ever worked with, that person who showed me what it's like to get great notes and mm-hmm. to be asked to reach you know, for, for the very best story you can tell. Um, but he said to me, oh, you can run this show. <laughs> oh, my God. It never happens in yeah, this business. Absolutely. So as you're thrown into the deep end, yeah. um, how did how did you learn other than by doing? I mean, how did you seek help? How did you find answers? It, it, it's clear you, you had a pretty good idea of what you wanted this show to be, which goes a long way. I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted the show to be. I had some executive skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and that combination sure. enabled me to kind of 
run fast to catch up um, in the course of learning to be a showrunner. Mm-hmm. Of course, I hired some good, experienced television writers to work with me, and in particular, um, Showtime said to me, you can run the show, but we want you to hire a colleague at a very senior level who will basically help you and support you, Mm -hmm. teach you to be a showrunner. A woman called Ellie Herman Mm -hmm. um, came on. What was her background? Um, She had worked with David Kelly. Okay. And really, really knew her stuff and was great and patient and did teach me, you know, just about arcing out stories, about breaking a season. Yeah. So, yeah. So what I assume, you know, you had a room on this show. Uh, This was before everybody wanted to work in cable. So what was that room like? Who were the writers and and how how did it kind of come together to to create the series? I really have to cast my mind back to the first season. But, um, you know, people were... It, it wasn't the heyday of cable yet, but still, um, there were loads of fine writers that wanted mm-hmm. to work in the, you know, in the medium with the understanding that there was a lot more freedom and there were opportunities to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, First season. Here, here is the, um, and, and this is sort of dicey to talk about. But the thing sure. that I learned over the course of doing the L word, um, the first season, I hired a few gay women whom I knew um, or met, mm-hmm. and I thought I should have a diverse writers' room. Mm-hmm. Should be like, no, just because we're telling stories about lesbians doesn't mean they're not universal stories. I'm saying this is a show about lesbians, but it's for everyone. It's absolutely. for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was a challenge because I found over the course of a couple of years that the people who were most passionate about telling the stories, but also who could identify the things that were unique to the experience of being mm-hmm. a gay woman, were gay women. Mm-hmm. For so, sure. Um, that specificity goes a long way yeah. in, in any kind of show. And specificity mm-hmm. is key mm-hmm. to being a good storyteller, yeah. a good screenwriter, and especially a good television writer. When you're writing about a culture and an experience, you need that specificity right alongside of needing the kind of skill and craft. Sure. Absolutely. And that's a hard combination. So did you wind up with a group of really great writing lesbians? Ultimately, yes. Did you really? Uh-huh. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there was always somebody in the room who, like, and, and, and we wound up, like, by season three, great, great writing room. Mm-hmm. But um, in the third season, I had um, A.M. Holmes and Adam Rapp on my writing staff. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it makes sense. There's an honesty to that show that that is so raw that it does feel like these are true experiences or at least, you know, inspired by honest moments from people. And the greatest thing that happens in a writing room is when people start telling their stories and sure. just uh, telling the stories they know and throwing out those fabulous ideas and, and just, you know, shamelessly self-revealing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious about how that translates to Empire now. Uh, how big is your room, and what is what is the makeup of it? Um, in addition to Lee and Danny, who aren't you know in the room right. day to day, but who came into the room in the very beginning, and you know for the first two weeks really set the tone, led the room. Um, 
the room, I think, um, so Danny Lee and me, in addition to us, I think seven writers. Okay. Um, a, a writing team. Yeah, it's a good size. Um, there's a, a writing team, and then um, you know, who came with the Fox program, and mm-hmm. then five writers I hired to come onto the show. And um, most of the writers are African American. Mm-hmm. And it goes without saying that we set out first to find the best writers mm-hmm. available. Of course. And that with a view to capturing that specificity that you're talking about, then we chose writers who had a, an insight and understanding and could capture and create the voices of the show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to me, though, that, you know, there isn't going to be a one-to-one correlation as there could have been on the L word between the writer's experience and what what we see on the show, the story on the show. Uh, I assume you don't have any hip-hop moguls on your staff. Um, well, I don't have any hip-hop moguls. <laughs> I have one of the... Um, one of the most... Sorry. Just one of the most gifted writers on the staff is also a music manager. Who oh, has a client and is very much immersed in the world of music? Wow. Um, it's and it's as much who he is as being a writer is. Yeah. Wow. Another one of the writers on the Empire staff happens to be somebody who came out of the world of music videos, started his mm-hmm. career as a music video director. Hmm. So. We brought in a lot of outside speakers, guest speakers. <laughs> sure. We did our research. We read and, and investigated. But those voices are in the room. Hmm. Um, how, how are stories broken on Empire? Um, we start with nothing. <laughs> now, we started with the pilot, of course, and there's mm-hmm. so much story um, embedded in that pilot. And we... Followed, you know, we 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 just followed those threads. Um, I like to break a season into containable pods. Mm-hmm. So we were doing eleven new episodes. We broke six and that's great. five. That's smart. Yeah. Um, and and I'm, what I'm really curious about is tone on this show and like. You know, I assume everybody has a voice on this show. Everybody has stories. Everyone has a take, uh, and and everyone's pitching. But how do you, as the person steering the ship, know how far is too far? Know where the line is, or know when it just gets silly when it turns into dynasty? <laughs> you know, you know it intuitively. Mm-hmm. The actors know it. Oh, interesting. And. I, that, to me, is the other really important collaboration on a yeah. television show. The, the cast are our partners. Um, I don't approach um, the, the script in, in a dictatorial way. Mm-hmm. Very open to feedback. Invite actors to come and talk about the work and about the scripts and about where the characters are going. And if something really rings false to them... I first try to bring them around if I really believe in it, but I also listen, and we sometimes make adjustments mm-hmm. because they know their characters, 
and they have to be able to believe in what they're performing. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Is is there much rewriting on set? I'm, I mean, I shouldn't say is there much, but you know, is there that open attitude towards rewriting? There's on an set? open attitude. There's I wouldn't call it rewriting, but improvisation. Oh, interesting. Uh, and do you send the writers to produce their episodes? Um, I love to do that. I always have a writer on set. Mm-hmm. Wasn't able in the first season to send each writer to produce her or his episode sure. because I think when you're starting a new show, it's really important to have somebody with a lot of experience on set. Mm-hmm. If and I, you also want those minds in the room, is what we hear a lot. Yeah, it's a real loss when, when the room starts to get depleted of yeah. writers. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we have to talk about Cookie. Yeah. Uh, I, this is a character I don't think we've seen on TV. Uh, and it's exciting, and I think that's why, you know, in large part because of that, because of the performance mm-hmm. that people are responding to this character. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about developing this character, and, and when did you guys know that this would be a character that would be so I, much fun I to could write? take absolutely no credit for developing her. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I inherited her full-blown. Sure. Um, and I think that the character is... Danny Strong writes the words and surprisingly really, you know, writes a surprising amount of the dialogue that you would think wasn't written by him. Mm -hmm. But Lee is that character. I mean, and Lee will say this. He said, I'm all of these characters. Every one of them is a piece of me. But Cookie is both him and so many of the women he's known and has grown up with. Mm -hmm. And he's often talks about, you know, my sister is Cookie and I know this woman. And then Taraji, I mean, who else could have done that? She's just, she's a wonder. She also is that character. I think, you know, when she talks about it and she talks about her own life, it's clear that she comes from a world that's not too far from Cookie's Mm -hmm. world, but also just the way in which she tapped into that voice is just extraordinary. Well, it is. I mean, like you were saying at the beginning, there's this alchemy that happens sometimes when you get lucky, Mm -hmm. and and I think that is absolutely what happened here. Um, So we're, we're about halfway through the season, right? Uh, that's airing now. Yeah, we just aired episode five. Tomorrow night we air episode six of our 12 episodes. How how many had aired? Uh, wh- where were you guys in the process when the show started airing? Let's see. It was Well, the show debuted on January 7th. Um, uh, we were, I, I can't remember what we were shooting. You're right, still no, writing, no, I can though. tell you exactly where we were um, because it was... Christmas break, so mm-hmm. the show debuted just before we went back to work. So we had already shot ten episodes. Oh wow! I did not realize. Yeah. That. Okay. So, there, so there's obviously you know there's no course correcting at that point. You've done what you've done. You've told this contained story, uh, and also you, as we said before, you didn't know how well the show would be. You didn't know there was going to be a season two. Um, were these first ten, eleven episodes? Self-contained. Did you guys have an ending in mind when you came in? No, we knew where we wanted to end the first season, and we never for a moment thought there won't be more. Not that we were smug, <laughs> not that we were overly confident. We just designed the show mm-hmm. to live on and on. Sure, as you do with a TV show. Yeah. That's, that's what these things do. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it the, is it the same writer's room for season two? We haven't staffed yet formally. Oh, that's right, because it's still so early. Yeah. Jeez. Um, have you and Danny and Lee talked about season two? 
only barely. Okay. We're just beginning, but we're getting ready. We're, we're, we're getting ready to take our little writer's retreat before we actually begin Great. the process. Very good. Is there stuff that you, and I, you know, I don't need specifics necessarily, though I love them. Um, is there stuff that you as a writer felt you didn't, a story you didn't get to tell or an aspect of a character you didn't get to explore in the first season that you would like to tackle in the next season? Not specifically, mm-hmm. um, but there's loads more story to tell and sort of facets of character that we haven't even begun to scratch at. And sure. that's even with our main characters, even with Lucius and Cookie. Mm-hmm. Um, we already know a little bit of where we're going, and you'll see things that you haven't seen before. That's great. Uh, let me just go back for a second to ask how the room works, because I'm always curious about this. Um, do you do a lot of rewriting uh, of, of the writer's drafts? Here's our process. Um, we break our stories all together in the room. Then, as per the broadcast television process, we deliver um, a document, mm-hmm. two or three page. Actually, mm-hmm. I've cut it down to two pages wow. um, per episode. Yeah. And I think I s- delivered, I started out delivering six at once. And then I think we did, how many more makes 11? <laughs> Five five? more. So I think I did three and two. Um, once that gets turned around, and, and those documents, I sometimes, you know, I, I ask writers to do drafts of, mm-hmm. but I do them because sure. I consider it a selling document. Mm-hmm. And I just want to get the sign off. I want to really clearly convey that we know what we're doing, we know the story we're going to tell, and I want a fast sign-off so we can really go to work. Mm-hmm. So you deliver a pretty simple, straightforward yeah. kind of story. I would imagine it's it's about the emotional beats and the oh-my-God like moments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, then once before we go to outline, I assign the script mm-hmm. so that um, each writer knows what year he is writing. And I love the group process, but I really, really believe that writers write scripts. We don't write as a group. Right. We write individually. And we yeah. take ownership of our scripts. And so, Perfect. you know, that the process then becomes each writer writes her his outline. I'll take it, give notes, try to stay organized enough so that there's time to do a round of notes before I'll take a quick pass at it. And again, still at the outline stage, I'm making sure mm-hmm. that we're getting over that hump, you know, giving the studio, the network, the comfort that we know where we're going. So mm-hmm. I'll take a pass at the outline. We'll get it turned around, apart from the fact that there's the studio delivery and then the network delivery yeah. so that it's always two rounds. Um, it's a pretty straightforward process. Mm-hmm. And then, and in some cases, I, mean, I give each draft of every document to both Lee and Danny, mm-hmm. and sometimes they respond and sometimes they don't, depending on where they are. Mm-hmm. But when we get to the script stage, um, go through the same process, and then before I deliver to the studio, I usually wind up doing some version of a pass. Not always, but you know, often to do with structure, um, landing scenes, landing act outs, that sure. kind of thing. And Danny will take a pass. Danny took a pass at virtually every script, and Lee worked on every single script. Wow, no kidding. And 
keeping his voice yeah. in the process is really critical to the show, I think, being what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the same thing we talk about in The L Word, where it was clearly your vision and, you know, like-minded people having that authorial voice, having that clear vision for the show. Um, your name is on a number of these scripts. Are there characters you love to write? Are there particular joys to writing an Empire script? Well, there, there are joys to writing an Empire script. It, is, it actually is a joyful show to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, of course it's fun to write Cookie and great when you actually feel like you've nailed a moment mm-hmm. and you can write one of those lines that you know is going to be quotable. Um, but it's not just that, and, and frankly, sometimes those lines are Taraji's. I would say that... <laughs> close to half of them. No are, kidding. Yeah. How funny. Um, but it's not so much, oh, I love writing this character or that character. It's really when the stories cook, when you really feel like you're tapping into something. Um, and because the show has this kind of dynamic energy to it, as a writer, when you feel like you're nailing that energy, that to me is the joy in writing Empire. That's great. That's you know, I mean, my voice isn't the final voice. Even the scripts right. that I write that have only my name on, I give to various other writers mm-hmm. and say, do your thing here. Yeah, of course. But it's feeling the episode coming together that's really thrilling. Mm-hmm. And, and just a couple more questions, but, you know, as a showrunner and now as the showrunner of a big hit network show, do you have as much time to write? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I imagine you're developing pilots and things, too. Um, right now, no. I'm doing only Empire. Yeah. I mean, that's what I don't have time to do. Mm-hmm. And I love doing my own work, and I long for it, and I look forward to it. But sure. when you take on something like this, yeah. take it on. Sure, especially um, in the first season. Yeah. yeah. And I think at least for one more season, mm-hmm. I can't realistically think that I'm going to do much other than Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have much time, but writing is something that I spend a lot of my time doing. I consider it still to be the most important thing that I do. It's good to hear. Uh, do you have time to watch television? Only a bit. I'm catching <laughs> up on a few things. Yeah, what are you watching? This is how we end every episode. What's what's on TV that you're excited about, that you're talking about with your your you know family, your room, your friends? Um, right now I'm catching up, so um, I mean, I'm waiting for the new seasons of a couple of my favorite shows. Orphan Black, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, Game of Thrones. You're a tremendous nerd. <laughs> I'm a total nerd. <laughs> okay. And what I'm like, back-watching, catching up on, <laughs> that's old, but that I'm right now watching avidly, is Battlestar Galactica. Had you seen it before? I saw, I think, the miniseries. So that oh, okay. was a two-episode yeah, miniseries, like which I loved, but I didn't realize quite how brilliant it was. Yeah. And as a lover of television, but also as a student of television, it's just, it, it's graduate school. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's so much to learn from that. He, yeah. I will tell you, uh, uh, Ron Moore did a great series of podcasts, kind of before there were podcasts, when that show was going on, where he'd talk through an episode. I uh, haven't had time out. to watch them, but my wife has been watching the DVDs avidly oh, really? and loves his She'll podcast. Check out. Yeah, they're yeah. really, I mean, it's it's TV school. It's really interesting. I mean, yeah. look, it's why we do this podcast. Uh, those are good answers. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. 
great. It was really lovely. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 